Hello, everyone. What is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are listening on the podcast, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here every single Wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it. And if you're watching us on YouTube, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button as well. We post weekly every Thursday and you're not going to want to miss that. Now, today we are back with a survival story and this is the tragically disturbing survival story of how Nicholas Kalias and Ani okiki survived a 40-hour torture chamber in 2015. Today, we'll discuss what they endured during those 40 hours, as well as what led them to be there in the first place. So with that being said, let's jump right on into it today. Nicholas Kalias was born on December 31st, 1993. He has supportive and loving parents and actually grew up being one of four boys. Now, he describes his family as extremely tight-knit, and something that Nicholas grew up doing was playing sport. He attended the University of Rochester in 2012, and he was actually the first person in his immediate family to ever attend college. Now, right when Nicholas enrolled in the University of Rochester, he also joined their football team. Nicholas played a defensive end position, and he is an extremely gifted athlete athlete and football was his passion. He said that as a kid, he had always dreamed of growing up and playing football in college, and that's exactly what he did. Nicholas describes the team as being tight-knit considering they were such a small school. University of Rochester had about 8,000 undergrads at that time. So because of that, the team did form a close bond. Now, outside of sports, Nicholas also had other talents, and this included being a musician. He was a classical pianist, and that was also something that he had a great passion for. Ani Okiki-Iwo was born on March 17, 1994, and he also played on the University of Rochester football team. He grew up in Romeoville, Illinois with his twin brother and excelled in everything that he did. He was on the honor roll throughout all four years of high school, and he also played basketball for two of those years along with football. His senior year of high school, he was named the All-Conference Honorable Mention, and he was recruited to play for Rochester after that as a cornerback. So for Nicholas and Ani, this case begins on December 4th, 2015. And on this particular night, the two men were hanging out in Ani's apartment, which was located in the Brooks Crossing Complex on the seventh floor. This was student housing for the University of Rochester and where Ani was staying. Now, on the night of December 4th, Ani and Nicholas were having a pretty laid-back night trying to figure out what they wanted to do and how they wanted to spend their night. And this is when Ani gets a text message from a girl named Samantha Hughes. Samantha texted Ani saying that her and her friend were looking for something to do tonight and wanted to see if Ani and Nicholas wanted to join them. Ani then asked Nicholas if this was something he would be interested in, and Nicholas said, sure, they didn't really have any other plans for the night and hanging out with these two girls seemed like it could be a fun time. So Ani and Nicholas waited at their apartment for Samantha Hughes and her friend Leah Gigliotti to show up at Ani's apartment complex. Now once they got to the parking lot and met Samantha and Leah there, Samantha and Leah told Ani and Nicholas that they didn't feel fully comfortable 
going up to their apartment with them and said that they would feel a lot safer if instead the four of them went back to Leah and Samantha's house together. Now, Ani and Nicholas didn't see anything wrong with this. They thought it was going to be completely normal, completely fine. They didn't see them as a threat. So they agreed to go back to their home and they got in the car and drove off. Now, Samantha and Leah came prepared when they picked up Ani and Nicholas. They had brought alcohol with them. So on their way back to Samantha and Leah's house, everyone in the car was drinking and having a good time. But something that Nicholas remembers is he remembers driving back to the house and noticed that they were starting to enter a very unsafe neighborhood. He remembers thinking to himself that maybe this wasn't the best decision. However, by the time he thought that, they had already pulled up to the house. This house was located on 22 Harvest Street, and it was a two-story home that sat on a suburban street with plenty of neighbors. Now, while Ani and Nicholas said that it wasn't the nicest house or in the best or safest neighborhood, they never expected that this would be the place that would house the torture that they were about to endure. Now, once they walked into the house, Nicholas and Ani sat on the leather couch that was located in the living room, and they start just chatting, having conversation with the girls when all of a sudden the lights went out. Before they could do anything, five to ten masked men ran into the house screaming. And when I say masked, I'm talking about the horror masks that you find at Halloween stores or costume shops. All of these men had their faces covered with those types of masks. Each man was holding some sort of weapon, whether that was a stick or a metal pipe or a baseball bat. All of these men came in screaming and armed. Now remember, Ani and Nicholas were both football players at the time. They were big guys. However, when they went up against five to ten armed men, obviously they are at a very big disadvantage. Now, when it came to Nicholas, he tried to run for the back door and tried to get out. However, when he got halfway across the room, he felt something hit his leg. And when he looked down, he realized he had just been shot. Now, at this point, Nicholas said his fight-or-flight response kicked in, and he was able to get himself up off the floor and tried running for the door again, and this time he actually was able to make it to the door. However, what he didn't realize was that on the other side of the door, there were two women, two women that were not Leah and Samantha, two different women, holding the door shut so Nicholas would not be able to escape. Now, at this point, neither Nicholas or Ani had any idea what was happening. As you can imagine, being in this situation, not only are you scared for your life, however, Nicholas and Ani were incredibly confused as to why they were being the targets to this attack. They had no idea who these men were, really had no idea who Samantha and Leah were either. They were just two girls that Nicholas and Ani thought that they would hang out with for the night. So why all of a sudden were Nicholas and Ani being attacked? Now, after the initial attack, Nicholas and Ani were both taken into different rooms of the house, and that is where the torture continued. Their hands and feet were tied together while they were hit over the head with different objects, such as light bulbs and pipes. During the torture, they were also doused with lighter fluid and threatened to be lit 
on fire. There were also pieces of glass stuck all throughout their body due to the light bulbs being smashed over them. And Nicholas and Ani were also being threatened by these men who stood over them with chainsaws, threatening that if they moved, they would dismember their bodies. These men even sliced the webbing in between Ani and Nicholas's toes. That is the type of torture that these men were enduring. And again, they had no idea what was happening or why they were there. Now, three hours into the attack, the individuals who attacked Ani and Nicholas stuck Nicholas into the shower to wash all of the blood off of him. After that, both Ani and Nicholas were then brought to different rooms containing air mattresses, where their hands and feet were tied to the air mattresses. That way, they wouldn't be able to escape. Now, when it came to the identity of these attackers, like I said, they were all wearing masks at all times during their attack. So at no point did Ani or Nicholas really see their faces and be able to really identify them based off of their appearance. And along with that, these attackers were very, very organized in how they orchestrated this. They all had different nicknames for each other. That way they would never call each other by their real name. And along with that, each one of these men had a part, so to speak, that they were supposed to play. Each one of them had a job that they were assigned to do when it came to inflicting torture and pain. And each one of them knew what that job was and when to fulfill it. Now, these attackers had absolutely no shame and were even enjoying the pain that they were inflicting on Nicholas and Ani. These attackers ended up recording multiple clips on each other's smartphones of the pain that they were inflicting. There's one clip in particular where the ringleader of the group was standing over Ani and Nicholas's body wearing a mask. And this clip lasted for about 30 seconds. And during the clip, the ringleader is standing over Ani and Nicholas who were pleading for their lives. and begging for their life, saying that they will do anything that these attackers want in order to survive. And while they're pleading for their life, the ringleader of this is standing over them with a chainsaw, threatening them that if they move again, he will dismember them and he will cut them up into pieces. Now, the following morning on the 5th of December, when no one could get in touch with Ani and Nicholas, some of their friends started to get a little worried. They would call both Ani and Nicholas and realize that both of their phones were just completely turned off, and they decided that the best thing to do would be to contact the University of Rochester campus police. Now, once the campus police started putting the pieces of everything together, they realized that something bad could have happened to both Ani and Nicholas, and they decided without wasting any time to call the local authorities at the Rochester Police Department. Now, police were doing everything they could to backtrack and put together the pieces of what happened the night prior, and that's when they stumbled across none other than Samantha Hughes, and you will understand why and how they found her in a little bit. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Do you ever fantasize about who you'd be if you lived somewhere different? Maybe you'd surf if you lived by the beach. Or maybe if you lived in the city, you would live above a coffee shop and finally be able to write that novel you've always dreamed of. Or if you had a dishwasher, maybe you'd actually be able to start cooking and make a proper dinner at home. With over 1 million available units for rent on Apartments.com, the you abilities are endless. Apartments.com lets you narrow down exactly what you want and when you want it. And with their instant alert, 
you'll never miss out on seeing what could be your new perfect place. Apartments.com has helped millions of renters find their perfect place to live, whether that's an apartment, a townhome, or even a house, and they can help you find exactly what it is that you're looking for. Visit Apartments.com, the place to find a place. These days, you can't go anywhere on the internet without running into the most horrible takes. You know, your good old-fashioned homophobes or your self-proclaimed alpha males who are writing two-page articles titled How to Score the Perfect Female in 10 Days. If you are just as sick of these outdated takes as we are, you will love our podcast, Outspoken, hosted by me, Sam Collins, and my incredible partner, Shannon. We are an LGBT couple who have seen it all, been called it all, and are ready to take on the never-ending world of outrageous online opinions. Each week, we bring you the most ridiculous videos, hot takes, and hellbent news we come across on the internet. So come laugh with us as we dismantle outdated ideologies and tear apart the most confident idiots on the internet on our podcast, Outspoken. You can follow and listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you are listening right now. All right, you guys, welcome back. Now, authorities got in contact with Samantha and asked her to come into the stations. That way, they could talk to her and ask her a couple questions about Ani and Nicholas. And at first, Samantha was cooperative. She agreed to speak to authorities. However, after talking to them for a little bit and really not giving them any information that was helpful, Samantha said that she had to cut the questioning short and that if they wanted to talk to her again, they could talk to her the following day. And really, the only thing that Samantha told authorities was that she and her friend Leah were with Ani and Nicholas the night prior. However, they said that they met the men at Ani's apartment and stayed there throughout the night. And then Samantha said that she got too sick from drinking and the two girls had to go home and that was it. Now, authorities didn't really buy this story because first of all, it was easily disproven with security camera footage outside of the Brooks Crossing apartment complex, which shows that Ani and Nicholas did not stay in their apartment that entire night. And so authorities brought Samantha back in for questioning as well as Leah Gigliotti. Now, at this point, the girls were really giving the authorities the runaround and not really giving them anything that was helpful or useful. And authorities were starting to get frustrated, but Samantha and Leah didn't care. And because they weren't being arrested or charged, they had the liberty to leave the police station, which is exactly what they did. However, it is what they told police when they left the station that really shocked authorities. While the two girls were leaving the station, they looked back to police and told them, don't worry, they're not going to get hurt. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a pretty strong admission of guilt and confession if I have ever heard one. Authorities knew right away that there was no way that anyone would possibly say, don't worry, they're not going to get hurt if they weren't directly involved in what had happened to them. And if not directly involved, they certainly knew where they were and what was going on. Now, because of that, don't worry, they're not going to get hurt statement, authorities questioned the girls a third time. And this was a six-hour interrogation. And during the six-hour interrogation, Samantha and Leah gave authorities two different addresses of where the men could possibly be held. 
And one of these addresses was, in fact, 22 Harvest Street, where both Nicholas and Ani were. Now, when police got this information about the two addresses, they immediately put both of the homes under undercover surveillance for a little bit. And so these homes were under undercover surveillance while authorities were simultaneously trying to plan how they were going to get in and rescue Ani and Nicholas. Because at this time, authorities figured that they were dealing with very dangerous people. They knew at this point that this wasn't a one-man operation that was designating this entire thing. They knew they were up against people who were armed and dangerous. So they had to create a very specific and organized plan on how to get Ani and Nicholas out of that house alive. Now, while police were planning how they were going to get Nicholas and Ani out, the attackers had a plan of their own. While both men were being held captive, the attackers were trying to collect as much money from both of these men as possible. They took their wallets and credit cards and made Nicholas and Ani give them their PIN numbers. That way they could go to different ATMs and withdraw as much money as they could. Now, what these attackers didn't realize was that there are withdrawal limits on how much money you can take out of an ATM. And because they didn't realize that, when they reached that limit, they were getting very, very frustrated. And by the time they reached that limit, they had already taken out about $45,000 from the ATM. However, they wanted more. They were not satisfied with that. So once they realized that they needed to call the bank, they had Nicholas get on the phone with customer service from the bank that weekend. And the reason that they had Nicholas call the customer service was so he could get the bank to raise his limit as well as transfer money into his accounts. That way the attackers would be able to withdraw it. Nicholas said at this point, he didn't care what amount of money he had to give up in order to save and protect his life. So he was completely complying with the attackers and agreed to call the customer service. However, what these attackers didn't know and what Nicholas didn't know was that this is not a service that can be done on weekends. This particular service of raising withdrawal limits and transferring money has to be done on a weekday during business hours, which meant that these attackers would have to wait until 8 a.m. on Monday morning for Nicholas to be able to transfer his money and raise his limits. Now, because this put a very big bump in the road in these attackers' plans, they got increasingly angry and they took out their anger on Ani and Nicholas. They started threatening them by putting guns down their throats into their heads. They would point guns at them and then shoot them at the wall real quick to make it seem as if they were going to shoot them. And Nicholas said at this point, he basically accepted the fact that he could die at any given moment. And it was at this point that he also realized that not only had he been shot once in the leg, he had been shot once in the other leg as well. So now he was suffering from two different shotgun wounds in both of his legs. Now, as far as the mindset of both of these men, like I said, Nicholas at this point felt very defeated, as I think most people would. He felt that there was nothing that he could do to escape. He felt like he was never going to get out. However, Nicholas said that Ani had a much more optimistic mindset. He really did feel like they were going to get out and be safe. And that was the way that Ani was processing all the torture and what they were enduring together. 
So now we get to Sunday, and these men had been in this house for almost 40 hours. Then at about 9 p.m. on Sunday night, the SWAT team swarmed the house on 22 Harvest Drive, and luckily they picked the right house to go into first. This was the first house that they started with, because remember, like I said, there were two different addresses. So authorities had to make sure that they picked the right house to go into first, and luckily they did. Now, when they entered into the house, the SWAT team scoured through the house, and that's when they found two of the attackers sitting on the couch in the living room, and they were immediately arrested. While going further, authorities also found another attacker who, once seeing the SWAT team, ran into the bathroom where both Ani and Nicholas were being held hostage. Nicholas said at this point he had no idea what was going on, and he was obviously very terrified, but he said that this was the first time in 40 hours that he had seen any one of his attackers without a mask on. And this specific attacker was trying to untie Nicholas and Ani to make it appear as if they were not being held hostage. However, before he could finish doing that, the SWAT team kicked down the door and the attacker was arrested. Now, at this point, both men were rescued and put in an ambulance and taken to the hospital. And Nicholas remembers seeing his father for the first time after his rescue, saying that his father went up to him and told him that he was safe now and that everything was going to be okay. Nicholas was taken to the hospital where he discovered that he lost four pints of blood, which is equivalent to basically 40% of the blood that a human body holds. So with this all being said and all of the attackers being arrested, let's talk about who was behind this entire operation. Now there were a total of four women and five men who were a part of this. That is nine different attackers in one way or another. These attackers included Elliot Rivera, Leah Gigliotti, Samantha Hughes, Jesus Castro, Dennis Perez, Lydell Strickland, David Alvarez, Ruth Laura, and Nalia Rowland. Those were the nine people who were involved in this torture and in this attack. Now, Elliot, Leah, Samantha, Jesus, and Dennis pled guilty to kidnapping charges. However, Lydell, David, Ruth, and Inliana pled not guilty, and they all had to go to trial. Now, Lydell Strickland was basically the ringleader of this entire operation. He was 26 years old at the time, and he was the one who was in the video that I spoke about earlier, wearing the mask, holding the chainsaw, standing over Ani and Nicholas. That was Lydell Strickland. Now, before we get into how these trials went, I want to talk about the bombshell of this case. And this is where a new man comes into the picture. And this man is named Isaiah Smith. Now, during Isaiah's junior year of high school, he was recruited from the Bronx to play football at Rochester University, and he really was the star player. And I'm not big on sports or really know anything about them. However, in all of my research, looking at all of Isaiah's stats and all of his information about his athletic history, 
every source that I have found says that he was an absolute star and a very, very gifted athlete. Now, Nicholas and Isaiah were on the same team, and here is a direct quote from Nicholas regarding Isaiah. He said, quote, he had the size, he had the speed, and he just changed the game for our team, end quote. However, the two of them, Nicholas and Isaiah, were never very close because they had very different priorities. Well, Nicholas's priorities lied in football and his music and school and his friends, Isaiah was much more interested in a different pastime and a different hobby, which was drug dealing. Isaiah spent a lot of his time talking a big talk and bragging about how he was the school's number one marijuana dealer and how he was selling to all the students on campus. And that was just not something that Nicholas wanted to partake in or wanted to be associated with. So he kept his distance. Nicholas said, quote, he had a reputation for wanting to be the best drug dealer on campus. That's really what he took pride in more than his exceptional athletics, which was shocking to me. End quote. Now, during his dealing, Isaiah also gained a reputation of scamming students and scamming the people that he was selling to. Whether that was he wasn't giving them the correct amount or the amount that he said that he was going to give them, or whether or not he owed money to certain people and wouldn't pay them back, Isaiah was known for being a little shady in that sense. And people picked up on that very quickly. Word traveled fast on that. And because of that, a lot of people were not a big fan of Isaiah. They didn't feel like he was trustworthy. They didn't feel like they could count on him. So he gained a pretty bad reputation for this. And before the kidnappings of Ani and Nicholas on November 28th, 2015, there is surveillance footage of Isaiah Smith running over to the Brooks Crossing apartment complex, which again was where Ani lived. Now, surveillance showed that Isaiah met three men outside of the complex and spoke to them briefly, and then these three men walked away. So Isaiah was talking to three men, and then the three men walked away, and Isaiah stayed where they were talking by himself. While he was standing by himself, four additional men pulled up in a black car and they got out of the car and they were carrying four pounds of weed with them. Isaiah met up with these four men. They're seen talking outside of the complex before all of them go inside. And here is where things get a little messy. Now, Isaiah brought these four men up to the seventh floor of this apartment complex and brought him in to Ani's apartment. Ani did have roommates and Isaiah was closer with Ani's roommates. But nevertheless, it was still Ani's apartment. However, no one was there at the time. This is November 28th. This is around Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving break. Not a lot of people are going to be on campus and no one was in the apartment at the time. So Isaiah brought in these four men with the weed that they had. But what these men didn't know was that they were being set up to be attacked. Once Isaiah and the four men walked into the apartment, the three men that Isaiah spoke with before they showed up ran into the apartment and attacked all four men, including Isaiah. These three men then took the weed and ran off, leaving the four men and Isaiah all in the apartment beaten. Now, Isaiah was actually in on this plan. That is what he was discussing with these three men on the surveillance footage prior to these four men arriving at the complex. 
I know it can kind of get a little confusing with all of these three men and four men, but we don't have names, so that really is the only way to identify them. Now, Isaiah was in on this plan. He basically orchestrated the entire thing, and he told these three men to also beat him up a little bit, obviously not as badly, but he wanted to make it seem believable. He wanted to make it seem real. He wanted to make it seem that he wasn't the one who orchestrated this entire thing. So that is why he asked the three men to also rough him up a little bit. And here is where the connection gets made. So one of the drug dealers, one of the four men that was attacked in the apartment was Elliot Rivera's cousin. Elliot Rivera was one of the nine attackers who tortured Nicholas and Ani. And Elliot Rivera, at the time, was roommates with Lydell Strickland, the ringleader of this entire operation. And when Elliot got word that his cousin had been beat up, Elliot then informed Lydell, And that is when they decided that they wanted to get revenge. They quickly figured out that Isaiah was behind the whole thing and they wanted to make Isaiah pay for what he did. However, what they didn't realize was Isaiah didn't take them to his apartment. Lydell and Elliot came up with the plan to lure the guys who lived in the apartment out of that apartment, not knowing that Ani and Nicholas had nothing to do with this. So in essence, this was a case of mistaken identity because Lydell and Elliot were trying to go after Isaiah, not knowing that Isaiah didn't live in that apartment and they weren't really familiar with what Isaiah even looked like. They basically just went off of the story that they were told, figured that Isaiah lived in that apartment, but took Ani instead. Now, after the trial, Lydell Strickland was sentenced to 155 years for the torture and brutal assaults on both men, and he actually laughed while he got his sentence. Judge Alex Renzi said, quote, I was trying to think if there were any redeeming qualities that you had, and I couldn't come up with any, end quote. Ruth Laura and Alania Rowland were also sentenced to seven years, and David Alvarez was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Now, Dennis Perez, Elliot Rivera, and Jesus Castro were all sentenced to 35 years in prison, while Samantha and Leah were given 15 years. Now, as far as Nicholas and Ani, both testified at the trial, and it was the first time that they ever spoke publicly about what happened to them. After the trial, they both said that they wanted to move on with their lives as much as possible and really put this in their past. And Nicholas has gone on and done multiple interviews and has spoken about this publicly on multiple different platforms. However, Ani has kept a little bit more quiet on everything and he hasn't really been seen publicly speaking about this as much. Both Nicholas and Ani have moved on, starting new careers, and both still to this day have to go to physical therapy for their injuries. Even if this wasn't a case of mistaken identity, seeing how much these men endured during those 40 hours is heartbreaking and it's disturbing and it's things you wouldn't wish upon your worst enemy but seeing it being a case of mistaken identity is even more frustrating police have come out and said as well as both nicholas and ani have said that they believe that they would have ultimately been killed if they were not saved authorities believe that the attackers would have waited until 8 a.m on monday to transfer over all of the money that way they could withdraw it and then they believe that nicholas and 
and Ani would have been murdered very shortly after that. So when you look at it as the authorities showed up at 9 p.m. on Sunday and more likely than not, the attackers would have just blatantly murdered both Nicholas and Ani on Monday morning. It's crazy to see that time window of only it could have been a couple more hours until Nicholas and Ani were murdered. And that is the survival story of Nicholas and Ani. And I cannot wait to hear what you guys have to say about it. But with that being said, you guys, that is all from me today. Make sure you go ahead and follow us on the Killer Instinct Podcast Instagram, which is just at Killer Instinct Podcast. You can also email killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com with any case suggestions, questions, theories, anything like that. And again, if you are listening to me on the podcast, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. We post weekly every Wednesday. You're not going to want to miss it. And if you're watching me on YouTube, make sure you hit that subscribe button as well. We post every Thursday and you won't want to miss that one either. I will be back next week with a brand new one for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye guys.